There are more than two billion Muslims worldwide, and the Lord is doing some fantastic things in the world of Islam. But what if you could go to these places and hear these stories firsthand? Well, during today's program, you're going to do just that. Plus, we'll help you understand the headlines coming out of the Middle East, and then we'll dive deeply into some listener questions. Always intriguing. So with that, welcome to The Land and the Book. Our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger, and boy, that new year is quickly approaching. Before you know it, 2023 will be here. Hey, what do you want your priorities to be for this coming year? And would you like a reminder to pray? Yeah, that's why our friends at Life and Messiah are offering a 2023 prayer calendar to land in the book listeners. Each month displays a beautiful image relating to an aspect of Jewish life and a point of prayer for that month. All the major Jewish holidays scattered throughout the year are also highlighted. This calendar will be a daily reminder for you to pray for the Jewish people and Life and Messiah's ministry. Now, if you'd like one of these artistic calendars for yourself or as a gift for someone else, visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button to find out how you can receive your calendar. That's lifeinmessiah.org. All right, let's dig into our look at current events for the week. And now that Benjamin Netanyahu has officially been given the mandate to form a new government, let's take one final look back at Israel's election. How did Netanyahu seemingly build such a solid majority in what was supposed to be a tight election? And and does this mean he will find it easy to build a strong coalition? Well, Netanyahu's block of parties won the election so handily for two reasons. First, they managed to get their supporters to the polls in large numbers, probably because having been out of power, they did everything they could to turn out the vote. Netanyahu also did a good job of getting the different right-wing factions to work together in the election. He pressured some coalition partners to join together to maximize the number of seats they would win. And he discouraged other parties from fracturing and possibly not getting enough votes to make it into the Knesset. The second reason Netanyahu won so handily is that Prime Minister Yair Lapid and his coalition partners made a number of strategic missteps. Lapid wanted Labour and Moretz to run together as a bloc, but the two left-wing parties didn't agree to do so. And as a result, Moretz fell just below the minimum percentage of votes needed to make it into the Knesset. An Arab nationalist Balad party refused to join with two of the other Arab parties. Those two made it into the Knesset, but Balad also came up short. The other mistake Lapid made was to try to increase the number of seats for his party by calling on Labour and Moretz voters to vote for him. His party did win more seats, but it was at the expense of these coalition partners. Uh, To give an idea of how Israel's system works and why strategic thinking is so important, the total vote difference between the pro-Netanyahu and anti-Netanyahu coalitions was only about 30,000 votes. Hmm. That makes the vote a a relative tie. But because a party needs 3.25% of total votes cast to make it into the Knesset, any party falling below that number in essence, wastes all the votes it received. In the pro-Netanyahu coalition, less than 60,000 votes were wasted by those who voted for Ayelet Shaked's party. But in the anti-Netanyahu coalition, 275,000 votes were wasted by those who voted for Moretz and Balad. Now, had Moretz united with Labor and had Balad continued in the Arab joint list, the pro-Netanyahu bloc would have received only 60 seats, one seat short of being enough to form a government. But with 64 seats, uh, will Netanyahu be able to form a strong coalition? 
probably, though he is experiencing some struggles. Two of the right-wing religious Zionist parties are demanding major ministerial positions in exchange for their support. They're also demanding other benefits for their supporters as the price for their cooperation. Now, all these coalition partners do know they're coming to power thanks to Netanyahu's leadership. And in the end, that might keep them from threatening to block the formation of a workable coalition. But at least initially, they're trying to force Netanyahu to make major concessions. Charlie, maybe I'm reading the wrong sources, but uh, I just don't see a whole lot of passion for, wait a minute, wait a minute, you know, he's being uh, charged with all these crimes and that's not done. It's just like, oh, you know, non-issue, he, he rises to power. What of that uh, whole scene? Well, you know, it's interesting when they did the surveys beforehand, when they said, who's most qualified to be prime minister? Netanyahu always came out on top. He was the one by a plurality, not a majority, but a plurality who felt he was most qualified. And, and as a result, I think some are just holding their nose and continuing to support him. Israel recently signed a maritime agreement with Lebanon to divide the offshore gas rights in the Mediterranean. And then just last week, Israel announced the discovery of additional natural gas deposits in the region. How significant is the discovery and will it create any new issues with Lebanon? Well, the discovery was made just south of the new maritime border with Lebanon. It's a significant find, though the initial numbers appear to be relatively modest. You know, before the discovery, Israel had an estimated 200 billion cubic meters of proven natural gas reserve. This most recent discovery adds, they think, about 13 billion cubic meters to that total. So it's about 6% more. But the real significance is the fact that the wells do confirm that this new area, located between two of Israel's other gas fields, is large and commercially viable. Uh, This new field is further away from the border with Lebanon, so it shouldn't create any issues between the two countries. The company doing the exploration plans to drill one additional well before the end of the year. They then hope to provide updated projections on potential reserves within the area sometime in early 2023. Israel's natural reserves are still rather modest. Uh, They come in 45th among the nations of the world. Mm. They're far behind Russia and Iran, who are the world's leaders in natural gas. But at a time when Russia and Iranian natural gas isn't available to Europe, Israel could help fill a strategic need. You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. Our host is noted Old Testament scholar and author Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger, and it's interesting, from a 3-by-5-inch fragment of limestone to the remains of an ivory comb used to remove lice. Archaeologists have been taking a second look at earlier discoveries and uncovering previously missed inscriptions. Charlie, I'm wondering how they missed the inscriptions and were they not gone over with a fine-tooth comb to begin with? And how significant are these finds? Well, you know, both stories are great reminders why it often makes good sense to go back and re-examine those previous discoveries. Uh, the broken piece of limestone did have writing on it, though it wasn't understandable. It was just fragments of words. Now, the tablet was originally discovered 14 years ago, but uh, the letters only formed those fragments. And what they found now as they've studied it is it actually turned out to be part of an inscription honoring King Hezekiah for his accomplishments. According to the archaeologist, the full inscription read, Hezekiah made made the pool in Jerusalem. Now that matches 2 Kings 2020, which describes uh, in part the other events of Hezekiah's reign. In fact, it says how he made the pool. Uh, So a royal inscription 
identifying King Hezekiah and matching the biblical account is what they found now. And that is a significant discovery. Uh, The second item is just as unique. It's a comb that was discovered six years ago at Lachish and dates to sometime after 1800 BC. That's after Jacob and his family had moved from Canaan into Egypt. The comb was used to comb lice out of a person's hair and beard and was carved from elephant tusk. Incised on the comb were 17 letters in an archaic Canaanite alphabetic script containing the, actually the first ever full sentence found in the Canaanite language. And what was written on the comb? May this tusk root out the lice of the hair and the beard. <laughs> so apparently the comb did work. They actually examined it under a microscope and found remains of head lice on it. Uh, but the first complete sentence written in the Canaanite language, and it's the equivalent of a marketing slogan on a comb for head lice. Okay. Well, new advances in artificial intelligence are helping doctors battle cancer and other diseases. What are the latest advances in AI coming out of amazing Israel? There are actually two recent stories. Uh, In the first, an Israeli company's developed an artificial intelligence engine for clinical thinking based on medical literature. The goal is to support and improve medical decision-making processes based on the world's largest collection of medical knowledge. It's designed to follow the processes used by most doctors to reach an accurate diagnosis. You know, they balance their medical knowledge and experience with the patient's symptoms and with test results. This new platform contains 30 million insights on thousands of diseases and findings, including statistical connections. It also contains an artificial intelligence algorithm that takes all the patient's data and scans the knowledge base to generate real-time insights regarding different diagnoses. Now, it's designed in a way that will allow doctors, even in remote areas, to use the system to treat patients. The second breakthrough is an artificial intelligence platform that can deliver instant and accurate DNA information on brain tumors, greatly reducing the time it takes before beginning treatment. The system instantly analyzes a tumor and delivers an in-depth genetic analysis along with information on processes through which the particular tumor responds to its environment. Uh, This treatment, though still undergoing trials at Sarasky Medical Center, has already been used to provide data on several brain cancer patients. Now, hopefully this new treatment will encourage a shift toward personalized medicine tailored to the individual characteristics of a patient, and that's the kind of innovation we've come to expect from Amazing Israel. Thank you, Charlie, for that look at current events. We're excited about having Stefano Fair join us in the studio. He's with Call of Hope Ministries, conversations about Muslims coming to faith in Jesus kind of stories you'll be sharing tonight over the dinner table. All of that plus questions and answers and Charlie's devotional here on The Land and the Book. The frontiers of Muslim evangelism are full of stories of God's powerful intervention. From the Syrian refugee crisis to visions and and dreams throughout the Muslim world, God is certainly at work. He's for Muslims. This is the land of the book. I'm John Geiger. And in this segment, remarkable stories of the grace of God, Muslims finding Christ. First, though, let's think about how you and I can share Christ with the Muslim friends in our lives, in our neighborhoods. 
One issue we cannot ignore as we reach out to our Muslim friends is that of gender sensitivity. There are some do's and don'ts along this line. Samia Johnson is with Call of Love Ministries. Help us understand, Samia, what we need to be thinking uh, with regard to gender sensitivity. So, John, I don't think in the West we are aware of that, that a Muslim woman finds it so strange if a Christian man comes and tells her about Jesus. Mm. First, she'll feel that this is uh, not her place to be talking to a man. At the same time, she will be afraid that any of the men in her family will see her talking to a man. Uh, So it will give a bad image about her. That's why we always encourage men to reach out to Muslim men, women to Muslim women. I've had uh, so many encounters and stories of young Christian women in colleges, uh, they're attracted to Muslim men and they try to reach them for Christ. Even before they get attracted to them, they Mm -hmm. say, we we just want to be friends. But this Muslim doesn't understand that this Christian young woman wants to be a friend. They don't have this in the Muslim world. Just a friend is all she wants to be. And he's perceiving it to be something other than that. Because there's no way you can be just a friend in an Islamic uh, country. That's why we should avoid this. Samia Johnson is with Call of Love Ministries. More about them at their website, calloflove.org. calloflove.org. Stefano Fear is president of Call of Hope U.S. Call of Hope makes the gospel accessible to Muslims throughout creative media, relational evangelism, discipleship, humanitarian aid, and church planning initiatives. Stefano resides in Germany with his wife and two children. We always love to have him on the program. So welcome back to The Land and the Book. Thank you so much, John. It's great to be here. Hey, let me ask you right off the bat, is ministering to Muslims more difficult these days, about the same, or less difficult? Well, with God, everything is possible. So, you know, I don't like really to talk about difficulties, but more about opportunities. And I'm sure there are more opportunities than ever really to uh, witness to Muslims these days. Okay. So is there anything, though, that is changing about ministry to Muslims? You know, of course, technology changes things. Yes. You know, I mean, in the past, I would have never thought that you can lead Muslims to Christ just through the internet, you know, and, and this is happening now. Yeah. Um, in, in Lebanon, we have a whole team working with Muslims and every month, two, three, four, give their life to Christ. Amazing. Uh, they have not seen them, but they are in contact with them over months and they come to the Lord. You know, something I always thought would not be happening. Mm -hmm. I mean, in the past, yes, there was radio, but then at some point you needed to see the people and talk to them. And No, I mean, people sit somewhere in Yemen or uh, sit somewhere in Syria um, or in Israel and they receive the Lord, you know, it's unbelievable. Hmm. Stefano Fair is president of Call of Hope Ministries, targeting Muslims and their need for Jesus. Uh, we promised listeners up front some stories, so let me ask, what's the first one that comes to mind? Well, the one from Mohammed. Uh, I mean, many people there are called Mohammed. This yes. is a Mohammed from uh, Lebanon, 
And, uh, you know, in the past, I told you a lot of stories of Syrian refugees in Mm -hmm. Lebanon. But now, actually, uh, many Lebanese Muslims are coming to Christ. Hmm. This has to do with the crisis. I don't know if you are aware, in Lebanon, they are going through their uh, really most difficult economical crisis they ever had. But this also brings a lot of opportunities. This Mohammed, for example, a guy 39 years old, um, he studied economics, he had a very good job, but now he can't feed himself anymore. So Mm. one day he was in front of the office door of one of our co-workers, Brother Tuma, he knocked the door and he said, you are Christians, I'm Muslim, but can you help me? And he said, well, we can surely help you but we would like you to come to our Bible study. He said, yeah, here I am. I'm coming. So two days later, he came. Yes, he got some food, sure. But um, he listened to the preaching, to the sermon. And he said, the first moment I came into this church, I felt the peace and I felt the light of Jesus. Mm. And he came for three months He listened to the teachings, and one day he comes to our co-worker and he tells them, he says, listen, I want to receive Jesus, and I don't want to be called Muhammad anymore. Mm. Oh, what? No, I want to change my name, and I want to be called Nur. Nur in Arabic means light. And he also gave the explanation. He said, I understood that Jesus is the light of the world. And I also understood that Jesus said, you should be the light for the world. So don't call me Muhammad anymore. I am Nur now. I am the light. And three months later, he decided to get baptized. Hmm. And he wanted to get baptized in a Sunday service, you know, with 150, 200 people there. And our pastor, Pastor Tuma, he told him, okay, um, I, I'm very ready to do that. But do you understand what you're doing? Mm. I mean, in front of all these people, yeah. do you understand that you risk your life? Because this is still the case in Lebanon when you're Muslim mm. and you receive Christ and you get baptized and people know that they might kill you. And Muhammad looks at him and just says, to live for me is Christ and to die is also for me to gain Christ. That's it. And he got baptized and we trust the Lord. That that happened now this August Mm. and we trust the Lord that he will carry him through. Yeah, that's Noah, the light Mm. in Lebanon. Following Jesus, who is the light of the world, Stefano Fair with Call of Hope is joining us today in our studios here at The Land and the Book. Well, Christ is for Muslims. We want you to hear that message loud and clear. Christ is for Muslims. Uh, You know, you travel a lot to America. Do you think that this nation has gotten the message that Christ is for Muslims? Are we stepping up or are we mostly messing up? (laughs) See, John, here in America... And also in Europe, when you switch on the television, what do you see? You see terrorism. You see Muslims uh, going against us. You see bombs. You see blasts. You hear of all of this. So I do understand people, you know. So, So I don't think this is messing up. It's just 
we hear of this, you know, and we hear of all this hate. And I'm so happy that you are saying Christ is for all Muslims. That's exactly the point, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm saying loud and clear what Islam is. And Islam, sorry to say, is evil. But Muslims are loved by God. You know, we always have to do this to make this clear difference. Yes, yes. Muslims are creations of God and God loves them and, and he really wants them to be with him. And this is how he wants to use us. So I don't think it's about messing up. It's about to understand, first of all, that Jesus loves me and that he changed my life. But then... If he loves me, he also loves Muslims. Mm. I think that's the first step we have to understand when we want to reach out. You could never reach out to a Muslim if you don't love them. Mm. I think this is really also a journey with us that we pray to the Lord to give us this love because we cannot produce it. Yes. And when he has given us this love, then also to give us the opportunities. And then, you know, in a very simple way, reaching out to people, not like going to them and tell them, oh, Islam is bad, or, or, or maybe even not go to them and say, oh, Jesus loves you. No, just approach them and talk to them in a very natural way and, and make friends, you know. Yes. And as the Bible tells us, then the time will come where you are asked to really testify for Jesus. And we can do that. Stefano Fair joins us today on The Land of the Book. He's president of Call of Hope. And our topic, Christ is for Muslims. How about another story of God at work in the life of a Muslim? Uh, I think about a very recent story in Lebanon. The name of this uh, woman is Noura. And Noura, that's very interesting. You know, when she was nine years old, uh, her parents told her that she has to cover herself. She comes from a very influential Shiite family. Mm-hmm. And Noura, this little girl, nine years old, she said, oh, I don't want to cover. Hmm. Uh, this is itching me. You know, I don't <laughs> want that. And she was crying and shouting and Well, the parents were upset, but they, at the end, had no other choice to allow her not to cover uh-huh. her face. And uh, with Noura, it went on. When she was 13, she heard how her older brothers wanted to actually marry her off to an old Muslim. Mm. And again, I mean, for weeks, she was crying and shouting and They were not able to get her married. Hmm. She was always like that. Uh, that means she ended up being 30, living at home, and she was the only woman not covering herself, and she was also not married. Mm-hmm. But that meant that her family just sent her away. You know, mm. they said, well, you, mm. you can't live with us anymore. So she uh, started working, but then again, not covered. She didn't have much chances, you know. Mm-hmm. So there was a okay case so far. She, she, she lived pretty well until last year the crisis really hit her, you yes, know. Yes. Uh, there was nobody who could actually give her work, and she was not able to pay for her rent. And she told us one evening she was in her room. She didn't know how to pay the rent anymore. And she said, well, that's it. I'm just going to kill myself now. Hmm. 
And that was the moment when somebody knocked at the door and it was her neighbor, a Syrian refugee um, who has come to Christ and she is part of our church. And she came in and said, hey, Noura, wouldn't you like to visit with me the church? Wouldn't you like to come with me tonight? Hmm. And she thought, well, <laughs> I mean, what do I have to lose? Yeah, and she right. said, oh, okay, I'm coming with you. And she said she, she was sitting there and it was the first time in her life that she felt respect from the people mm. and being loved by somebody, loved mm. by God. You know, she said she always, 30 years of her life, she was rejected. And now there are people, not Muslims, Christians, who love her. Mm. And she also understood Jesus loves me and he respects me as a woman. You know, I'm not a second class citizen here. Yeah. I'm loved by Jesus. Next week, she came again to the church and it was interesting. One of our deacons reached out to her and said, oh, sorry, Noura, uh, we are not distributing food today. We are distributing food tomorrow, so you need to come back tomorrow. She said, forget about the food. I'm not here because of the food. I want to hear about Jesus. Mm. You know? And uh, she also gave her life to Christ and got baptized uh, this year because she understood that she is loved, you know. Mm. Christ is for you as a Muslim, and maybe you're listening right now. Stefano, would you, would you pray a prayer that would be appropriate for a Muslim or anybody that could pray with you right now to receive Christ? Yes, Lord Jesus, I thank you that you died for me, that you went to the cross for me. I thank you for your love, and I ask you to Take me on as your child. I thank you, Lord, that you are my light. And I thank you, Lord, that I am called a child of God from today onwards. In my Lord Jesus' name, amen. 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 We'd love to hear from you. If you prayed that prayer, send us an email, will you, to the land and the book at moody.edu. Stefano Fair, will you come back soon? Oh, absolutely. If you invite <laughs> me, always, John. We love visiting. We love your stories. Love your heart for Jesus. And we love the fact that you, more than anyone, know that Christ is for Muslims. We're back with segment three next on The Land and the Book. Welcome back to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. Our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. This next segment, it's you, your thoughts, your questions, your musings as you ponder Scripture, prophecy, and the Middle East itself. Those thoughts are always welcome, by the way, with an email to thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Charlie's Bible is open. There's a smile on his face. Let's dig into our questions, starting with Todd's. How do we know Jesus and his disciples spoke Aramaic? Why did they speak Aramaic? Do you think the people at the time of King David would have been able to understand modern Hebrew? Well, you know, several questions there. And the first one, we know they spoke Aramaic primarily because some of the transliterations of Aramaic words make it into the Greek New Testament. Uh, for example, uh, when Jesus raised the child of the synagogue official in Capernaum, uh, it says he, he said, 
Talitha kum, which is Aramaic for little girl arise. And on the cross, Jesus cried out, Lema sabachthani, why have you forsaken me? But that's Aramaic. Now there's other examples, but they let us know Jesus used Aramaic, which had become the normal day-to-day language of the, of the Jewish people in the time of the Babylonian captivity. And they still used Hebrew when they came back, but it was more likely common there in their religious services. Uh, they also spoke Greek since it had become the common language of the larger international scene. So uh, the people in the Holy Land at the time of Jesus, well, they were multilingual. Now, in terms of Hebrew, we don't have information on how much the spoken language changed from the time of David to the time of Jesus, but we do know that the language had changed. In fact, I like the illustration in Judges 12. The people who lived in the remote parts of Ephraim couldn't pronounce the word shibboleth. Uh, in their dialects, you know, they were hillbillies, and their dialect gave them away. And it lets us know that language did change over time. But uh, getting back to the question, it's kind of like the time, you know, if someone from the time of Shakespeare came today, could they understand the English we're speaking? And the answer is they could. Some of the pronunciation had been changed, but there'd also be new words and phrases that came into existence that would be totally foreign to them. You know, Wi-Fi, internet, airplane, telephone. And I suspect something similar would have been true had David been able to come back at the time of Jesus or today. He would have understood some of the Hebrew, but some of the words would have been different. Patty says, I'm reading through Numbers right now, and I read Numbers chapter 6 this week. I'm confused by the mention of God's command of the Nazarites not to drink or consume of the vine. While in chapter 6, verse 20, it says, After that, the Nazarite may drink wine. Is it because now that they've been consecrated to the Lord and service to the Levites that they can drink wine? I think the answer probably is best to uh, understand the Nazarite vow itself. It actually only was a vow for a very specific period of time for the most part. It was a special, as they say it, vow of separation to the Lord in in uh, that chapter in verse 1. Uh, verse 5 then refers to the entire period of his vow of separation. Uh, and then verse 13, it talks about what happens when the period of his separation is over. So when an individual took a Nazarite vow, uh, he wasn't allowed to drink wine or any fermented drink, eat grapes or have raisins. He wasn't allowed to get his hair cut or go near a dead body. But then verse 20 makes it clear. Once the vow was completed and the individual had shaved off his hair, then he was allowed again to drink wine. Now, most Nazarite vows, as I said, are only temporary. Uh, in Acts 18, Paul cut off his hair after keeping a vow. Uh, in Acts 21, Paul goes to the temple to pay the expense for some Jewish believers who had completed a vow and were now getting ready to have their hair cut. But there are a few instances in the Bible where individuals were set apart to the Lord at birth, apparently under a Nazarite vow for their entire life. That includes people like Samuel and Samson and John the Baptist. Now, Samson broke his vow, but God later provided enablement at the end of his life once his hair had grown back. Here's a question from Joy. Did all of the Exodus generation die before entering the promised land? In the first three chapters of Deuteronomy, Moses addresses the congregation as if they were the Exodus generation. And in Deuteronomy 2, verses 14 through 16, it says, when all the men of war perished, they started toward the promised land. Can you enlighten me? Yeah, and I think the key here is uh, in Numbers 14, God had said, every one of you 20 years old and upper who recounted in the census and who grumbled against me, well, they were the ones who would die in the wilderness. Uh, the women weren't included in the census of warriors, nor were any males under the age of 20. So when Moses addressed the people in Deuteronomy 1 to 3 during the 40th year, there would have been a sizable number who were alive and who remembered the events of the past 38 years. You know, Any male who had been 19 years old at the time of Numbers 14 would now be 57. Uh, when Moses said things like, you're unwilling to go up, I think he's addressing the nation as a whole 
And it might be similar to someone today describing how we as Americans felt when the airplanes flew into the Twin Towers in New York City. You know, obviously, a lot of Americans weren't alive 21 years ago, but enough are that can still reference that collective memory. Moses wanted to make sure everyone, those alive at the beginning as well as those born during the journey, understood what had taken place and why. You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio with our host, Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger, amazed as you are that Thanksgiving is staring us down. I'm looking forward to that. And then the new year is quickly approaching. Before you know it, 2023 will be here. What do you want your priorities to be for the coming year? Hey, would you like a reminder to pray? Yeah, our friends at Life and Messiah are offering a 2023 prayer calendar to The Land and the Book listeners. Each month displays a beautiful image related to an aspect of Jewish life and a point of prayer for that month. All the major Jewish holidays scattered throughout the year are also highlighted. This calendar will be a daily reminder for you to pray for the Jewish people and Life and Messiah's ministry. Now, if you'd like one of these artistic calendars for yourself or as a gift for someone else, visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button to find out how you can receive your calendar. That's lifeinmessiah.org. We're looking at questions from listeners. Maybe yours is one of them, and if it isn't, it could be. Email your question to Charlie anytime at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Kem asks, would you please help me understand what happened in Judges 19, verses 22 through 30? Yeah, in one sense, this account's self-explanatory. Now, for those who don't know that passage off the top of their head, it's a report of an incident that ultimately involved a marital struggle and abandonment of moral absolutes, mob violence, rape, and murder. And the outcome almost wiped out the entire tribe of Benjamin. Uh, it's one of the most sordid accounts in the Bible. Now, I think God included it in the Bible for two reasons. First, I think God included it to remind subsequent generations that the sin nature leads to horrific results if it's not held in check by strong biblical leadership. Sin always leads to moral decline, as illustrated in this account. And second, I think the story was included to illustrate why Israel ultimately needed a king like David. You know, in the account, it actually starts in chapter 19, verse 1, in those days, Israel had no king. And that same phrase keeps being repeated in that part of Judges in 17.6, 18.1, 19.1, and 21.25, the very last verse of the book. Uh, it's a reminder without strong godly leadership, everyone did as he saw fit. Now, the account also reminds me the Bible isn't some pious book of platitudes. You know, it takes an unflinching look at humanity and it shows that apart from obedience to God and his standards of right and wrong and godly leadership, society will always decline morally. Uh, from Cain killing his brother Abel to all the events in Judges to the Holocaust or the wanton murder of millions of unborn children just for convenience sake, we've seen this repeated again and again throughout history. Uh, the account is a reminder that violating God's standards of right and wrong ultimately leads to degradation and disaster. Uh, this listener takes us to Ruth chapter 1, and uh, their study notes for Ruth 1, 1 indicate that the events took place in the time of the judges. Having just finished reading that book, it's clear everyone did right in their own eyes. And the notes also say the mention of David and his genealogy places the writing of Ruth sometime after David became king in 1010 B.C. So the question, were people still doing right in their own eyes, or had they come to recognize David's kingship? Yeah, the fact that the book of Ruth ends with David's genealogy does let us know that the book was written after David became king. And I think that introductory phrase in 1-1 about the time of the judges was intended to place the events of the book squarely in that time when people were doing what was right in their own eyes. 
one of God's threatened judgments on sin was famine. And uh, in Deuteronomy 28, God said he'd send scorching heat and drought and make the sky overhead bronze. And apparently that's exactly what he did. You know, when the house of bread, which is what Bethlehem means, ended up in famine. So I think the purpose for the book of Ruth is to show that the faithfulness of two individuals, Ruth and Boaz, helped change the course of the entire nation. And their ultimate descendant, King David, followed in their footsteps and brought the nation out of the troubles that it had experienced during the time of the judges and even during the time of Israel's first king, King Saul. Here's one from Peggy. She says, what happened between ancient times and modern times that the Jews no longer had a country? I look forward to every Saturday on KHCB so I can hear what you guys have to say, and I'm never disappointed. Well, Jerusalem and Judah fell to the Romans in A.D. 70. That's when the city and the temple were destroyed. There was a second Jewish revolt in A.D. 132 to 135 during the time of Hadrian. Uh, That's when he decided to change the name of the country to Palestina, Philistine land. Uh, There were still Jews, though, remaining in the land. In fact, I don't think there's been a time when the Jewish people were not still in the land. But uh, by the late 1800s, In the early 1900s, more Jewish people began coming back because of persecution elsewhere. So the Jews who were deported from the land, as well as those who fled the country uh, when it was threatened, scattered around the world. But uh, the Jewish people have continuously come back, remembering Israel and Jerusalem as their homeland. Charlie, thanks for your answers. We're looking forward to coming back and enjoying your devotional. It's next, right here on The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. Thanks for joining us today on The Land of the Book, where we've saved the best for last. Charlie, your devotional takes us to an interesting story about a warrior who found his courage. Yeah, we've all had a lost and found experience. Uh, This warrior was looking for something he really needed, and it was his courage, and we're going to see how he found it. It's a great story, and we're going to get right to it after we listen first to this Holy Land experience. Check this out. Hi, my name is Mary Ann, and this is my Holy Land experience. I was sleeping the first morning there, and we were in a hotel that overlooked the city. And the call to prayer for the Muslims came out, and I thought, I can pray in Indiana. And even though I was tired, I'm going to go out and pray in Israel. And I sit out in front of the dome and was praying as the sun came up. And the cock crowed at that time. And I remember Peter denying the Lord. And I remember thinking how many times I had thought of him as not being faithful. But here I was sitting in his land and I knew that he was faithful. And I still remember this day, the faithfulness of God because of that experience. You know, listening to that Holy Land experience uh, takes me to the thought that our own Dr. Charlie Dyer has led nearly 100 tours to the Holy Land. Along those lines, Jackie Powell, a good friend of the broadcast, she's been a guest as well, has emailed. She says, having taken tour groups to Israel nearly a hundred times, I don't know of anyone on the planet who knows as much about Israel as Dr. Charlie Dyer. And I recommend his program for all lovers of the Bible and of Israel. Many thanks, Charlie. Neat uh, endorsement there. Thank you, Jackie. Jackie serves with Light for Israel. Well, Charlie, this subject of your devotional today, Courage, takes me to the cowardly lion in The Wizard of Oz. The one thing he lacked? Courage, as he put it. But you've got a different take on that today. 
Yeah, though we may wind our way back by that cowardly lion at some point in here. You know, my wife would say kindly that I have a quirky sense of uh, music or eclectic sense of music. And one of my favorite quirky songs is the Remember song. It's sung by Tom Rush. I'm not going to sing it, but it starts looking for my wallet and my car keys. Well, they can't have gone too far. And I guess as soon as I find my glasses, I'm sure I'll see just where they are. Supposed to meet someone for lunch today, but I can't remember where or who it is that I'm meeting. It's in my organizer somewhere. The song gets way too close to home for anyone who's forgotten where they've left something, and that's pretty much all of us. Losing things can be frustrating, but there are some things in life whose loss is more than just frustrating. It's tragic. Uh, One of those things happens to be courage. I do like the Cowardly Lion and the Wizard of Oz, just like you, John. A person lacking courage uh, knows what needs to be done but is too paralyzed by fear to act. So where does someone go to find courage? To find the answer, let's visit the town of Afula in the center of the Jezreel Valley. Modern Afula is large and bustling with activity, but I want you to mentally erase all the modern buildings and traffic and roads and imagine an ancient village nestled here on the western edge of the Hill of Moray, where it drops off into the valley. The village was named Ofra, The Hill of Moray, along with Mount Carmel and Mount Gilboa to our south, served as bookends to bracket a section of the Jezreel Valley that extends all the way to the Jordan River. This part of the valley served as a natural highway extending to the east. Unfortunately, at the time we're visiting this town, the highway is clogged with the camels of the Midianites and the other sons of the east who are coming to loot their way through the land of Israel. As we look around the nearly deserted village, we eventually spot a young man named Gideon threshing his wheat in a wine press. It's an inconvenient place to thresh wheat, but the secluded location offers at least some protection from those marauders passing by. And just then, the angel of the Lord, who is actually the pre-incarnate Christ, appears to Gideon and boldly announces, "'The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior!' And this is when Gideon starts singing the Remember song. Because he seems to have lost his courage, he certainly doesn't feel like a valiant warrior. Now, let me ask you, when is the last time God actually appeared to you and talked directly to you? If God told you to your face you were a valiant warrior, would you believe him? Well, Gideon didn't. God then gave Gideon a direct command. Go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? But Lord, Gideon responds, I'm the youngest kid in the least important family in this tribe. When you were passing out courage, it must have all been given out by the time I showed up. If God was selling trust and obedience, Gideon wasn't buying. The rest of the story is familiar to most readers. Gideon asks for a sign and God has fire spring up from a rock to consume a sacrifice. That might convince most of us, but not Gideon. When the Midianites and the invaders from the east arrived in the land, God placed his spirit on Gideon, giving him divine enablement. But still, Gideon hadn't found his courage. Lord, if you'll deliver Israel through me as you've said, here's what I want you to do. I'll put a wool fleece on the threshing floor tonight. Cover it with dew, but keep the ground dry. The next morning, Gideon walked over bone-dry ground to reach his soaked fleece. I can almost hear him saying, Rats, I never was good at science. Maybe it was supposed to be wet ground, dry fleece. So he tested God still another time. 
and walked across the dew-soaked ground of the threshing floor only to find a bone-dry fleece. Now, put yourself in Gideon's place. You've seen a vision of God. God had fire spring from a rock, and then he changed the course of nature on two successive nights to show his power over the elements. Are you courageous enough now to trust him? Well, you might be, but Gideon isn't. After gathering his army and having God whittle it down from 32,000 to 300, the time for battle had arrived. But before sending him into battle, God made one more offer to Gideon. If you are afraid to go down, go with Puri, your servant, down to the camp, and you will hear what they say. And Gideon responded, Thanks, God. I'll take you up on that offer. He still hadn't located his courage. As Gideon and his servants reached the outskirts of the Midianite camp, they heard one pagan soldier tell another about a dream he had. A barley loaf rolled into camp and fell on top of a tent, smashing it. The second soldier interpreted the dream. That's nothing less than the sword of Gideon. God has given Midian and all the camp into his hand. And finally, it clicks for Gideon. He found his courage while listening to one Midianite interpret the dream of another. Wait, if even the Midianites know I'm supposed to win, maybe God really does have the situation under control. We chuckle at Gideon's lack of courage, but there's a little Gideon in all of us. We might know intellectually that what God has said in his word is true, but we still struggle to accept it in our hearts and to act on it in our lives. So as we watch Gideon run down the valley pursuing the Midianites, what lesson can we take home from our time here with him? How about this? God is incredibly patient with his followers, even as they struggle to move his truth from their heads to their hearts. God provided numerous lessons to help Gideon find the courage he needed to obey. And I believe God is just as patient with us. He works in our lives to help us learn to trust and obey. Gideon saw himself as little more than a frightened farmer, but God saw him as a valiant warrior and then patiently worked to help Gideon discover the courage he never knew he possessed. And God will patiently work in your life as well, so you can say, just as Gideon or just as the Apostle Paul, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Charlie, I want to do something a little bit different today. I want to invite you to pray for that listener who's going through a difficult work situation. They need courage. Maybe it's a relationship challenge, a, a call to ministry that they sense is from the Lord, and yet they lack that courage. Would you pray for that listener? Sure. Father, thank you for Gideon. Thank you for showing us uh, not just the person, but the warts as well, the struggles that he had. Uh, Lord, we struggle the same way. We know what to do, but uh, moving that truth from our heads to our hearts is hard. For the person struggling right now, maybe in a call to ministry or, or maybe with a situation at their, their office or at their home where they need to have that courage, mm. Lord, help them to have it right now. Help them to sense your power in them and your, your purpose through their lives. Give them the courage to do what's right, to speak the truth in love. Uh, to stand up for what they need to, uh, to stand for. And we pray that you'll do it in a way that will bring glory to yourself because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You know, uh, Charlie's devotional is something you might just want to listen to again, particularly if you're struggling with this issue of courage. And you can hear it and the entire broadcast online at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Be sure to give a click to that Facebook icon that you see there so you can keep connected all week long with 
articles and photos that Charlie updates continually, thelandandthebook.org. For Charlie Dyer, Dan Anderson, I'm John Geiger. Join us again next week for another edition of The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.